Hello and welcome to the Disruptors podcast. On the show today, we have an innovator and a true disruptor, and his name is Jason Hill. Jason and his disruptive company, Hill Helicopters, is completely rewriting the rules of aviation and is going to disrupt the helicopter market. This is a fascinating conversation about risk-taking and how to really disrupt your market, your industry, and never to take no for an answer. But before we get straight into this, remember, if you don't risk anything, you risk everything. Jason, are you the Elon Musk of aviation? <laughs> um, I think it's a bit early to... Uh... <clears throat> to start making those kinds of uh, those kinds of comparisons, uh, all all we've set out to do is to deliver a helicopter that people really really want to own. So I think there's been a there's certainly from from my perspective there's been a void out there for the machine that I wanted to own. You know something that was an aerial Grand Taurus, something like an Aston Martin that that flies, um, and and just bridging the the technology gap and the expectation gap between what was okay in the 70s and what people expect today and so that's what we're really trying to do um it seems to be resonating pretty well with the market so far but we've uh, we've got a little way to go yet before we can uh, make those kinds of claims well we'll get into um hx50 and what you do yeah um has anyone <clears throat> tried before you to properly disrupt um the aviation industry helicopters yeah, lot, lots of people have tried to, to make helicopters uh, and lots of people have tried in pretty much every way you can imagine to, to make different kinds and different sizes and different routes to market. Um, but it, 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 it's one of those jobs where you've got to go big or go home. You can't do... You've been listening to American podcasts. Uh, no, no, not at all. <laughs> the, you, you can't do half a job. You know, a helicopter is really defined by its engine, and for a long time, the engines have been quite, um, quite a limiting factor for this this sweet spot that you need to hit, where you can take full, uh, four sorry five normal sized people, their bags, three hours of fuel, and fly at a sensible speed. The engines have never quite been able to to deliver that. What's um, been limited about them? Just that the you've got a limited palette of engines to choose from. Um, so you've got the, the the traditional C250 series engine that is just a, just not quite powerful enough and doesn't quite have the altitude performance that, that we need. And then you move on to the the bigger engines like the the, the Safran engines, and, and they all start to get very expensive very quickly for a general aviation product. They're, they're all great at what they do, but they, they the, there was nothing out there that offered the performance at the right price and then the level of refinement and ease of use that allows you to deliver the helicopter that that we really wanted to so um, in terms of why people haven't haven't had big success with this before is because it's a massive job you know uh, to, to get the helicopter that you want you first have to develop an engine because there aren't engines out there at the right price that will allow you to give people the performance at the price point that they need to set the market on fire again and it, it doesn't stop there the the to get to the price point, it really takes a complete reinvention of the supply chain as well. You can't go to the existing suppliers and just buy, I'll have my avionics from there, I'll have my engine from there, I'll go and have my bits and pieces from my gearbox from there, because you end up with a parts bin that costs more than what you're trying to sell it for. Um, and that's again because of over over the, the past three, four decades, general aviation has been in a sort of spiral dive of rising costs and lower and lower uptake. 
Um, and so you, you've, you've really got to go and sort out how you're making the helicopter, which for us means vertically integrating and making the vast majority of stuff ourselves. So we've got end-to-end -end control over the supply chain. So it's not just about designing a great helicopter. You've got to design a great engine, you've got to design a suite of avionics, and you've got to vertically integrate and um, make pretty much everything yourself, which means it's an absolutely enormous task. So it's not that people haven't tried, they have tried, but they haven't been successful because they didn't do enough. And you've got to do all of it to really resonate with the market, and that's why we're seeing the, um, uh, the impact that we're, we're having. So for the layperson mm -hmm. who doesn't know Jason Hill, Hill Helicopters, the vision, and just how differently you're doing things, mm -hmm. could you just let us know what you're doing so radically different? Okay, so uh, essentially forever, aircraft have been built by assembling parts from different specialist suppliers. So if you wanted an engine, if it was a small aircraft, you'd go and see Lycoming or Continental and buy a little uh, piston boxer engine, like a flat six like you'd used to have in the old Porsches. Um, or if, you, if your helicopter was slightly bigger, you'd go and buy a, a small jet engine, a turbine engine from Rolls-Royce or Allison, as they used to be known for, for those engines. And that was your starting point. Uh, and the same with the instruments, you'd go to Garmin or Avidyne or the, the people that used to make the old mechanical gauges and things and that would be where your instruments came from. And then your fuel system would come from somewhere else and your sensors and everything else. And you'd end up with a, a parts bin of aircraft. But if everybody's using the same parts, you've got precious little left to, to innovate with because all of the performance and the capabilities of those parts then define your design space, they define what you can do. Um, and what's, what's happened since really the early 1980s is for a number of reasons that stem back to US product liability and amongst other things, um, the costs of general aviation and the uptake in the market has declined and declined and declined. And so the prices with the smaller market size for each unit has gone up and up and up. And we're now in a, in a position where all of these things are broadly the same as they used to be. Uh, but the price has gone up and up and up, and you can't really design a, a, a better aircraft from that starting point. So what we've done that's different is essentially we've uh, torn that page out of the, the book and started with a, a completely clean sheet of paper. So we started by saying, if I, if I want to design a helicopter that does this, and this is five people, three hours of fuel, fly at 160 miles an hour, uh, for 500 miles or 420 nautical miles, then what have I got to do to deliver that? How do I make a helicopter go faster? How do I make a helicopter go further? How do I make it smoother, safer and easier to fly? And How do you make it look sexy? And how do you make it look sexy? <laughs> yeah. And what that does then is it gives you a palette of technologies that you have to have to be able to do that. Um, you have to make your own engine. It has to be a gas turbine. You have to have a composite fuselage because it's the only way that you can get that auto automotive quality into the, the body and simultaneously deliver the aerodynamic performance that you need. You have to cowl all of the mechanical components like the rotor hub and the pylon. By and the cowl mast. you mean? Just wrap an aerodynamic fairing around it. So mm. a lot of people don't realise that if you look at a conventional helicopter that, that's got a, a body, a rotor system and some skids, only about a third of the drag comes from the body. 
Another third comes from the exposed pylon and rotor hub that holds the blades, all the mechanical gubbins on the top. Mm. That's a third of your wow. drag. And then between 20% and a third of the remainder comes from the skids and the other bits and pieces. So it's that off. why there's not like this long stem here. Then. So that's yeah. why we've had a shorter mass. That's why we've cowled it all in with these aerodynamic fairings right. and things. And that's why the skids Harry, have Harry, you'll put images up, will you, are we? Yeah, great. Yeah. yeah. And the um, the... the that then means that you can go much, much faster. If you can go faster, you can go further, yeah? The composites give us the ability to have the aerodynamics and to have this, this, this uh, beautiful exterior. And that's, again, it's not just about the designers drawing pretty pictures. It's about the delivery of those surfaces as well. I'll take you outside later and you can have a look at our tail fin. And you're, you're familiar with light helicopters. Mm. You'll know that they're, they're traditionally wrapped out of sheet aluminium yeah. and then riveted yeah. on formers. Under it. So all of the mechanical gubbins that holds the helicopter together is on show. Even your door hinges are on the yeah. outside of the body, on a, all for good reasons, but horrible from a, a product point of view for today's discerning customer that's used to cars and things like that that are just on a different level. And so by bringing all of these, these things together, you get to deliver an aircraft that is matches today's consumers' expectations. Uh, and so we had this palette of technologies that we needed that involved the composites, the engine, uh, that involved modern aerodynamics, uh, and involved a, a very neat mechanical solution for all the other bits and pieces, and that then enabled us to deliver the helicopter that people wanted. But of course, to do all of that, what's radically different about the way that we've done it is the fact that you cannot just go and get the composites expert and the jet engine expert and the avionics expert because they all want astronomical amounts of money to do anything. And if we were to engage with them, you then wouldn't hit the price point that is fundamentally required to make general aviation accessible again. I was born. And that in, price point is for for HX fifty. It's half a million pounds sterling. So and uh, that's like a million quid cheaper than a another a turbine yeah, type it's, helicopter. Yeah, it's some. It, if you the 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 nearest competitor in terms of a truly private aircraft that we've got is the R sixty six, and they're, they're around that? a million by the time you've put the right. same level of equipment on. The base price is cheaper than that, so you can pay you can pay less. So but you're ba you're basically undercutting by about half. Around there, around there, and that's if you if you go for uh, a machine that's far more basic than what HX fifty is. If you go up to bigger helicopters. Um, and it's interesting, the helicopter market, the helicopter you buy it, for private owners is nothing to do with your mission requirements, it's to do with how deep your pockets are. Mm. Because if you want one that looks like a proper helicopter or flies fast, you very quickly get into the three to six million dollar range. Yeah. Um, and people do do that, you know. Um, and so this really uh, is targeted at, at anybody that had ever wanted a helicopter. And interestingly, it's more about the direct operating cost and the depreciation than it is about the ticket price. You've got to get the cost of operating it under control. Um, and to do all of that, like I say, we, we essentially manufacture everything. So, sorry to interrupt, but you just... Um, did I um, read right that basically the running cost of this are like a, just a bit more than a Range Rover? Is it like five grand a year or something? You were saying it's a little bit. It's a little bit more than that. So your 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 insurance will be around five grand a year. Your um, maintenance service about, and maintaining. What would it be? Uh, it, about ten or fifteen grand a year in the UK, something like that. And what would what would a um, uh, 
turbine engine helicopter be? It, it depends because if you if you went to get a, an R66 then insurance and maintenance would be broadly similar. The, the insurance would be a little bit higher because we're partially underwriting our own uh, insurance to get the cost of that down. But a new 66, insurance and maintenance, broadly similar. The problem with... Um, Some of them cost tens of thousands, they, 50, 75 well, grand to run a year. Well, this is it. This is the problem. The problem isn't actually things like your, your insurance and your maintenance for a new machine, because they're pretty, pretty predictable. Insurance is quite high at the moment, but... Uh, it's to do with the depreciation mechanism. So in a lot of existing helicopters, Robinsons, for example, have a 12-year or 2,200-hour life on them. And after that, they need a major inspection or traditionally a, a major overhaul. So if they've done the 2,200 hours, they need an overhaul. If they've done the 12 years... Basically a rebuild. A, yeah, it's a rebuild. And it's, uh, it's a very significant proportion of the purchase price. So what that means is over the, for a private owner that maybe flies 50 to 100 hours a year, they simply don't get through the hours fast enough. So you end up with a perfectly good helicopter at the end of it, assuming there's no corrosion, uh, that uh, is essentially uh, grounded until it has this very, very expensive overhaul. And in turbine helicopters, it's worse than that because you have the same thing with 12 and 15 year overhauls, but very often different components are completely out of sync. So your transmission might need 12 years, your engine might need 15 years. And so you have these big lumpy bills that emerge at particular calendar periods, irrespective of how much you've flown the helicopter from a private owner. With a commercial operator, you'll blow through the hours much quicker, so it, 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 uh, it's less of an issue for those. But for private owners, you can get to a timed-out machine that's maybe done five, 250 to 500 hours, uh, used a, less than a quarter of its life, and so that sets this massive depreciation mechanism. So i.e. curve, i.e. the price straight, just drops. Straight-line depreciation. Yeah. and. And so for, for that reason, that then drives your operating costs. So in the UK, for if you assume you're going to rebuild at the end of the, the 12 years, then owners often find that a, a 44 would be around the 50k a year mark and a 66, maybe 75k a year mark. Yeah. What we've done that's different is that we've gone for a 5,000 hour life, which again is nothing in terms of uh, technology. The, the big turbine machines, the offshore machines have much higher lives than that. Um, and we've gone for an on-condition inspection. So these, these, these inspection requirements are two, twofold. You have 12, uh, 2002, or, or an hourly life, 2,200 hours in Robinson's case, uh, for most of the parts. And that's stuff wears out. So after a while, you've got to throw the bit away before it fails in service. So everybody does that. And then you've got another requirement, which is stuff rots. Okay, so if you leave a metal helicopter out in the rain for 12 years, you'd expect it to be rusty after a while. Um, and so with us, because we've got essentially a composite helicopter uh, with much more, a much more modern approach to corrosion management, then we can manage that a lot better. So we've gone for an on-condition uh, inspection requirement. So every year you keep an eye on where the, the machine is. There isn't this drop-dead date after 12 years. And with 5,000 hours, that's 100 years worth of flying for a private owner. You know, so mm. the, the thing that drives the depreciation is gone. Okay, so these machines will dep depreciate much more steadily, and it's primarily that that drives down the, the operating cost. The big thing, lots of people have said to me over the years, you know, I could afford to spend half a million pound on a, 
on a well-specced brand new R R44, but I couldn't afford to lose half a million pounds. You know, I couldn't afford to watch that deplete to nothing over over 10 years, 12 years. And that's what we've tried to, to address. We've made sure that people can come in because people's interests change. You know, if you if you got into helicopters, you might do it for five years or 10 years and then decide you want to go into boats, you know, or planes or jets or whatever. And you'd want to be able to get your money back out. And with traditional helicopters, that's been quite a trick because they can take a while to sell because it becomes a, a haggling match to try and find somebody that uh, can use the combination of hours and years that you've got left on a machine. Whereas our, our approach is much simpler. It depreciates in a much more manageable manner. Uh, we partially underwrite the insurance and we've got a much simpler approach to, to maintenance. And of course, we control the cost of the parts so we can keep those under control as well. So getting that under control means that running one of these is no more expensive than running a supercar. Right, so there's so many specific questions I'd like to ask, but first, I kind of have to address maybe the bit of the elephant of the industry, like talking to people in aviation who've been in it a long time, the old school, you know, might deem that you're maybe a bit of a mad professor, if you like. <laughs> um, this is so disruptive. You know, we're not talking about making a car where if it doesn't really work, people don't die. Mm -hmm. But if a helicopter doesn't work properly, people die. Mm -hmm. And it's a very serious thing. So how, how can you come and do something disruptive and be completely confident that this is either not just going to be a really expensive project that's going to fail or that these things aren't going to crash when they... When, well, know. the first thing to understand is that nothing here is new. We're not inventing anything. We, I always describe this, this helicopter and this engine as like a, a greatest hits album. So what we've really done is, is been and harvested all of the best time-proven ways of doing things. So the way we do the engine, the way that we do the gears, the way that we do the bearings, the general configurations, all of these things are ways of doing things that have been proven in other aircraft or in some cases in, in, in other industries that we know work. We know how to design, we know how to test, and we're doing a really spectacularly good job at the industrialization of that. So we're bringing all of these proven ideas together. We're sort of uh, delivering an, an excellent project, uh, product packaging exercise to deliver something that fits the, the requirements of the market. And then we're doing all of the testing and all of the, the development to or beyond the very latest certified standards. So we have to do absolutely everything that any aerospace manufacturer would have to do to prove that this thing is, is reliable. And beyond that, we're going one step further than that. In, because we've got essentially a private customer base, at least for the first three years of, uh, of production, our fleet leaders will be far ahead of even the most enthusiastic private owners. So we're not relying on customers to go and have the machines with the highest hours on them earliest in the fleet. It'll be our prototype machines that have the highest hours. So we will continue test flying a long time after we're approved and in production to shake out all of the early in-service problems that have traditionally been uh, found by early adopting customers. So we've, we've got uh, a very proven palette of technologies and approaches. Uh, we've got an extremely experienced team delivering this. A lot of the people that work for me have worked for, for other manufacturers and have worked in industries that use the palette of technologies that we're using before. So nothing is new to us that we're doing here. Um, all that's new is the Gucci packaging. <laughs> <laughs> the 
I'm not as technical as you, obviously. Um, I'm just someone who flew the R44 for a good while. Um, but as I understand it, you know, when you have all the separate parts, there's a certification process of all of those, which I assume is done for safety. Yeah. And you're not getting external parts. You're building this entire thing yourself. So essentially, are you not shortcutting a necessary certification process? No, you couldn't fly if you shortcutted that process. So we buy top quality certified uh, certify, certified materials. Uh, we've got the highest quality machines and processes that you can buy anywhere, all brand new. Uh, and we do all of that in-house. And then every component, every process is certified by us, the UK Civil Aviation Authority, and then the authorities around the world. Now, there are different ways that you can approve products for, to fly. So in the UK, we have the permit to fly route, uh, and you also have the type certificate route. And in terms of the basis that you use to approve uh, under either route, for us, we, are, we still have to be a design-approved organisation, so that's certification grade. We still have to be a production-approved organisation, so that's certification grade. We still have to be a flight test-approved organisation, certification grade, and we still have to have all of the maintenance approvals to be able to support these things uh, in service. So. We have to have all of those things. We then design and show compliance to the latest standard of uh, Part 27, which is the light rotorcraft standard around the world. Nobody's designed an aircraft to that standard yet because it was only released two years ago, right? So we'll be, uh, we have all of the same suite of approvals that any of the manufacturers have to have. We have to show compliance with the same with a code that's more stringent than anybody else does yet because it's the newest version of the code that we're we're addressing, and we meet all the same standards. Uh, the only difference in what we're doing is we're putting the aircraft to market in two formats. So we're putting the aircraft to, to market on a permit basis, which means we get to bring our customers to the factory and teach them far more about the helicopter than you would get from just flight training. They get to be involved in the, the manufacture of the structure, of the gearboxes, of the engine, of the whole assembly process, so that they have a level of knowledge of how the thing really works to be able to execute a, a proper walk around and know what the bits really are and mm. know what they really do. Know if that leak is important or if that crack's important or if that mark is of any significance there. And it gives people the ability to be much more competent and independent owner operators. So for us, using that approach to deliver the aircraft to market for private owners gives us an ability to train people to a far higher standard than has been possible before just by virtue of the facilities that we'll have around us when we're training them. Okay, and then for the the fully certified version, that essentially goes out the the conventional route. It is entirely the same aircraft built in the same organisation with the same parts, the same materials, same as everything. It just goes through a lengthier, more bureaucratic uh, process with the aviation authorities. So uh, the, there's no there's no shortcuts taken at all. And when people talk about certification, uh, they kind of misunderstand the the realities of this. If you go and read CS27 or FAA Part 27, you won't find that that tells you how to design a safe aircraft. It just tells you a lot of the things that you have to do and some of the things that you shouldn't do. 
it doesn't stop you from designing an aircraft that's fundamentally mismatched for the target market or doesn't have enough power or has all of the, the other potential pitfalls that you can uh, make in a helicopter to make it you know, really unsuitable for inexperienced pilots. None of that is precluded. So it would allow me to design a terrible helicopter, but it, people hold it up as this gold standard. It's really just the minimum standard. It's a, a compendium of all the things that we've done wrong before. So it just prevents you from making common mistakes. It isn't the recipe to designing safe helicopters. There's much more to that than, than just certification. And when you look at it from a company's point of view, Certification is a, uh, a, it's a very good independent check of what you've done and uh, we value that, that very highly. But uh, there's, a, there's a much bigger uh, thing that we need to be worried about, which is the consequences of injuring people in helicopters. You know? That weighs very heavily on our, uh, our minds, both in terms of the, the relationships we have with all of our customers and also the, the consequences for the company if these things were to start falling out of the sky. So don't assume that um, our route to market is, is there for anything other than delivering the best helicopter we can. Yeah, there's a couple of things that come of that. Because um, it feels to me like this is what Robinson did, mm -hmm. but in a more luxurious way. And I'm assuming there were some issues with Robinsons in the early days and some of those must have um, crashed. And so I did want to talk about um, how you feel about being an industry where people's lives are in your hands, if you like. Have you, have you studied what happened when Robinson launched the, the, the so 22? I, I think we are, we are in a very, very, very fortunate position compared to the, the market conditions that prevailed when Frank Robinson uh, developed the R22. Frank Robinson de developed the R22 and solved many of the problems of the day. So as we've talked about this 12-year, 2,200-hour life, well, at that time, the equivalent piston helicopters had been developed for military training applications. All of the lives of the components were all over the place. And so the aircraft spent more time in the hangar being taken to bits uh, for to remove a, a left-handed washer from over here and inspect it and then put it back and then two hours later something else over it. And he, he pulled all of that together and made a much more cost-effective uh, helicopter. And I think um, their, their quote is that they, they reduced the cost of operating a light helicopter by 70% back then. It was incredible. But he was going into a virgin market. So he went into a market where there was no precedence before him. The only machines that had rolled out before that were really military derivatives that were expensive and ill-suited to civil life. And, and so, of course, the, the product itself found a market all of its own. It found what it was good at when it went out into the wild for the first time. And, and with that comes unintended consequences. Okay, so uh, there are some characteristics of the helicopter that weren't ideal for the market that it found uh, greatest application in. He couldn't have foreseen that, um, and they, they've just had to live with that and work with that over the over the years. And they've they've done some in, incredible things to to manage safety, and they they have an incredibly reliable product. Um, we're lucky in that we've got all of those lessons to learn from. So we're not going into a virgin market. We're going into a market where we fully understand what private owner-operators need. 
what they're like, how they behave, the kinds of missions that they want to do. And I've got 20 years of experience as uh, a sort of private helicopter operator, knowing the kinds of people that knock around the flying clubs, knowing the kind of behavior traits and personality traits that we've got to try and manage. And that has very much shaped the, the characteristics of the helicopter uh, to make it as benign and docile as Can you as share some of those? traits that you're managing to engineer into the yeah, helicopter. Yeah, I think everything in life that puts you in a position where you could afford a helicopter should probably disqualify you from owning one. <laughs> like, um, yeah, well, it's it's the people that have been that successful in life tend to be very assertive and confident. They're used to pushing hard and, and getting what they want. They trust their own uh, judgment. And those kinds of characteristics uh, can, unless properly managed, be a, a very, very toxic mix with inclement weather and a lot of things that you, you have to do when you're managing flying helicopters. So managing those sorts of big personalities is vital if you're going to, to be uh, able, of, able to deliver a, a safe user experience for, for private heli helicopter owner operators. So th that's very much the, the main one. Um, so are, you, are you saying you've factored those into the design and the engineering of... The design, the engineering and the operating principles right. of the, the helicopter. So, so give us a couple of examples. Of well, in, term, in terms of the, uh, the, the, the people management, that's very much about how we monitor the aircraft and how we monitor the aircraft's usage. So we live in an age today where you can monitor anything. You know, we have a, a, a Hill app where at the moment that's just used to connect our customer community and, and for us to, to update them on a, on a private basis beyond what we put out into the, the press. But that app will be extended to contain the dashboard for the helicopter as well. So its service requirements, how it's being used, and ultimately it will be used to track how and where the aircraft's being used and how it's being flown. So if people start to develop flying behaviours that will inevitably lead to hazardous safety conditions, we can intervene before it happens. We react to the developing behaviour. We don't go and sweep up the mess after an accident. And so we call it active safety management, and it's basically bringing in a lot, bringing in a lot of the learning from how commercial uh, transport pilots are, are managed and operated uh, and peer-reviewed to a, a more uh, sort of digital version of that that we can, without being too, too intrusive, we, we obviously don't want this to be an 18-year-old black box on the dashboard of your car kind of thing for the insurance companies. It's very much about the stakes are much higher with helicopters and uh, you're, you're kind of always tiptoeing along the edge of a cliff and you need to respect that. And so this just gives you uh, an honest review of how you're, you're flying, how you're behaving and allows allows us to intervene if we need to, to ensure people stay on the right side of the line. So that's one of the examples. And then in terms of dealing with the, uh, the other uh, issue with these kinds of people, which is private pilots don't fly enough, you know? All of the characteristics that put you in a position to mean that you can buy a helicopter mean that you're too busy, you've got all sorts of other things going in your life, and you probably won't fly anywhere near uh, as often as you want to. And, and I'll give you an example of that. I, uh, I, I share the use of an R66 with a, a friend of mine that's five miles away. The 66 is five miles away from the DC here. And I think um, in the year before last, between us, we put less than 20 hours on it. Yeah. You know, And that's no good. You need no. to be flying all the time if you're going to be safe. So 
what you need to do to make sure that you're as on top of the situation as you can do is to make sure the machine is as easy to fly as possible. So we've made sure that the aircraft has got bags of power. You, everything in helicopters is easy when you've got lots of power. It's, it's kind of the opposite of cars. Um, takeoff and landing, as you know, needs lots of power. So the more you've got in hand, the more carefree you can be with the handling. If you're constantly monitoring a, a, a few percent margin in power, it's a recipe for disaster when you're not current. And then in terms of the, the rotor system, uh, we've got a very high inertia three-bladed rotor system. Now what that means is that it's resilient to gusts, it's resilient to turbulence, it's benign in those conditions so it just wants to sit there when it sees gusty weather and, and winds, it doesn't want to move all over the place. It means that the attitude of the fuselage is much better constrained to the attitude of the rotor disc, whereas in a two-bladed helicopter the only thing that holds the fuselage under the rotor is gravity. So if you have a, a low-G manoeuvre or you experience low-G due to, due to turbulence, you don't have direct control over the fuselage. Uh, and there have been a number of accidents in two-bladed helicopters because of that for as long as they've been in service. So we've designed a rotor system that's benign, uh, both in handling and if you had a power failure, it gives you the greatest amount of time that you possibly can uh, to get into auto rotation. It means that flaring at the bottom of the auto rotation is as easy as possible uh, because again, you've got the most time and the most energy stored that you can possibly have. But perhaps more important than all of that is stability augmentation is standard. So we take a helicopter that is fundamentally unstable and make it stable. Uh, and then the other thing is workload reduction. You know, there, there is no sense by any way of justification in it taking you uh, to look and read and monitor four gauges just to know what your power situation is. You know, so our digital cockpit is about taking a, a sort of root and branch review of what it is to fly a VFR helicopter and only providing the information that you need and then delivering that as clearly and as simply as possible. So flying becomes as easy as driving your car. And it's the same with the navigation, making sure that we take full advantage of fully integrating the electronic flight books that we now use for GPS navigation in, in most VFR flying and making sure that's front and center in the uh, in the cockpit so navigation's easy communication's easy monitoring the status of the aircraft is easy you get that workload down and then your infrequently flying pilot has got more headspace to be a pilot and to be alert to the changing situation around him so that's those are the kinds of measures that we're taking to make this better and safer and more appropriate for the target market than ever before so if it's too early to say if you're the Elon Musk of aviation, R Hill Helicopters, the Tesla of aviation, because some things you said sound similar, like with, you know, the fully automated self-driving that Teslas have, but no other cars do. And, the, you know, the, the intuitive learning of human driving behaviours that's connected across all the Teslas. Have you followed how Tesla have done what they've done with the cars? Is there some of that in this or is this just a problem you've solved independently? I, I think it's in, it, it's independent. I can I do, I get asked this a lot uh, and I do. Sorry, I'm I, trying I, to be original. Yeah. <laughs> and and I, I do understand, I do understand and see the parallels. Because if you look at the, sorry to jump in, yeah, yeah. you know, Harry, if you could put the image up as we talk here on the YouTube. But if you look at the dashboard, that's way more a Tesla dashboard than that is a, another kind of 
dashboard. There's just screens. I get it. Yeah, I I totally get it. What I I would say is um, the parallel is Tesla took a fresh look Mm. at what you could do with a vehicle. If you take the constraints of internal combustion away and the packaging constraints that that creates, if you uh, take away the, the, the sort of carryover from years and years of doing things the way we've always done it, then Tesla ended up where Tesla ended up. And we followed a, a, a similar path with, with aviation. You know, the, the reason we've got, there's two reasons why we've got big screens there. Firstly, is we wanted to make the, the cyclic arrangement better. So if you hide the cyclic under your, your instrument panel, you have to have something there to hide it. So there's a practical reason why you've got this sweeping dash across the, the front. Right. But fundamentally, if you want an intuitive, easy to read display for middle-aged eyes, then you need a lot of screen real estate so that you can put crisp graphics out there that people can, can not read. Not loads so, of dials. And not loads of tiny <laughs> dials vibrating all over the place. We actually, my instructor, Mike, occasionally used to tap some of them like this yeah. when they weren't working properly on the 22. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. well, I, I mean, it, it's, it's there because here in 2022, that's the best way of doing it. Mm. So we, we are, because we're not reliant on buying stuff from other people, we're just doing the best that you can do with today's technology. So the screens are there and uh, because it's the best way of delivering a properly connected, simplified uh, user experience with the minimum workload for the, for the pilot. Mm. Um, and the moment you put big slabs of glass in the cockpit, it starts to drive you towards other ways of packaging things as well. So that's why you end up in a, a broadly similar place. Mm. It's not because we're, we're just trying to repeat what, what they did. We, we can't do electric, I'm afraid. It doesn't work. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's, I, I see the parallels, mm. but it's just because that's what technology allows you to do today. Mm. And when you're not constrained by a supplier base, you can do what you want. Mm. So... The reason I didn't ask you to share kind of your journey and your 20-year experience at the start is because I'd like to get straight into some juicy questions. But I would love to hear about your 20 years experience. And also, as you talk us through that, why will you succeed in disrupting the aviation industry where those other people you said had tried and failed because you said you're going to go big and not go home? So mm-hmm. maybe you could answer those two questions together. Yeah, so... In terms of the the, the the sort of twenty year journey to to get here, um, I, I grew up in the the nineteen eighties. You know, I'm a child of the nineteen eighties when Knight Rider and Airwolf were on the TV. Love them, yeah, love and, them both. And so I, I grew up at a time where. Uh, computers and tech were just starting to make all sorts of new things possible uh, and, and I was really lit up by that uh, and I found it exciting and uh, Airwolf in particular I just mm. loved the idea of this helicopter and uh, all the things that it could do and I'd, I'd always wanted to be able to, to have a helicopter um, and as I went through high school, it became very clear where my skills lay. You know, I was I was naturally very good at maths and science and all of the sort of engineering subjects. Uh, and I think by the time I was in my mid-teens, I knew that I wanted to make a, a helicopter. It was pretty much all I thought about. It's tragic, really. Um, and well, it might not end up. It being. might not end up. Being, yeah. <laughs> so. Um, I, w- I went through that period really trying to equip myself with with all of the skills that I, that I needed. I've got a, a very solid 
business grounding, a proper earthy grassroots business grounding, because my dad built a business from nothing as a, as a motor mechanic, and I'd, I've seen him pull himself up by his bootstraps, having to look after every penny and work in hugely competitive markets and, and, and build a life and a business for us off off doing that and so i'd got a very keen sense of how business really worked you know um not a management view of it not a middle class view of it but a proper hard-earned working class view of what it took to make a business successful um and then at the the same time i, I went off and started developing my my education i did a mechanical engineering degree and then a phd in aerodynamics i went to work for westland as they were back then and leonardo now um, uh, and, and gathered all of the skills and knowledge that I, I needed to, and while simultaneously going off to the, the States and learning to fly helicopters. I got to meet Frank Robinson while I was out there um, and see his factory, which was mesmerizing for a 20-year-old kid. <laughs> um, and so since, since then, it's really been a, a battle, essentially, because at that age, nobody takes you seriously. And quite frankly, you don't know enough to get the job done anyway. So I, I finished my PhD. Uh, I lectured for a little while while I just got myself back on my feet after my, the, the financial pounding that is a PhD. Um, and then set up Dynamic Engineering, which is my, my first engineering business. And that was really rolling out all of these aerospace-grade skills and technology and analysis capability into all sorts of industries. And I kind of spent the next 10 years or so working in all sorts of industries, solving all the most difficult problems that they couldn't sort out for them themselves, uh, designing, developing, analyzing, all sorts of things, and all the time, pulling the money that we went back and putting it into the development of the helicopter. So the early versions of the, the helicopter look, look nothing like HX-50, you know. Um, what you find as you grow up a little bit is the, the, the thing that you design reflects where you are in your own life at, mm. that, at that point. So, of course, when you're just out of university and you've got not two beans to rub together, you think, right, I'm going to design a helicopter. Better make it cheap so everybody can buy one. And so I set out to, to design a little two-seat helicopter and make it as affordable and accessible as possible. And when I went and pushed that out to some people that know in the, the industry, they said, but everybody flies R44s. They got four seats. They take their families and their friends with them. You know, mm. very rarely ever see a 44 with many empty seats. So flying is a social thing. You need to you need to take that into account. And, oh, that's strange. Uh, and then I went away and um, tried to upscale it up to up to four seats. And then, of course, you run into all the problems with the engines because you immediately, if you put the gross weight where it needs to be, uh, you can't get the power out of a piston engine. You know, they, they're just not powerful enough to do it. So we... Um, uh, that then pushed us into, the, right, how are we going to solve that problem? And we looked at everything. We looked at pistons. We looked at upscaled versions of Lycomings that we'd make ourselves. We looked at diesels, automotive derivatives, changing big block American V8s into petrols, turbocharged petrols, turbo diesels, all sorts of things. Uh, and eventually just came down to even radials. I even went back and looked at piston radials, uh, petrol radials, and even two-stroke diesel radials and things to get the the power density the up and nothing worked and even if you could get close to where you wanted it on power and price the refinement was awful it would still sound like a tractor so we just kept coming back to the fact that we'd got to do this this turbine and so back in 20 
2014, 2015, we started doing some, some early work on the turbine engine to prove that we could uh, engineer one that had hit the performance and also make it for the price. So all of the, the groundwork, because you know as well as I do, that we've been told forever that gas turbines are horrifically expensive and it's all because of the fancy super alloys and everything. No, it's not. <laughs> no, it's not. Those materials aren't that expensive. Um, it's because there's no competition. Uh, and so we went and proved all of that and we designed some parts and got some parts costed and as you can see here now we've made some parts and mm. we were right um, and so we went and developed the the engine to a point that we knew we could do it and that then gave us complete freedom to say right clean sheet of paper what does this helicopter need to be and that then really uh, enabled us to get the the product to a point where it resonated with the market when we when we tested that uh, and then we piled into the, the development of that and at that point we'd managed to get it far enough both technically and commercially that we were able to attract some UK uh, innovate UK grants so I think we've we've had about 2.6 million in in total over the three or four year period uh, but I bet that doesn't go very far uh, it depends how big a company is. Yeah. How much it costs to develop uh, something um, depends very much on who's developing it. And so, no, it's a drop in the ocean in, com in comparison to where you end up to produce 500 helicopters a year. But in the early days, it is absolutely game-changing. Mm. Absolutely game-changing. Because what that meant for me is now, rather than running a business where we were service-orientated and all the guys were solving problems for for people outside just to cover their expensive salaries. Now we've got uh, a bit of money so more of the people could work on the uh, the, uh, the development of the helicopter and develop it to a point that then it was, a, it was something that people would buy into. And at that point, we were able to, to start what uh, what, what we were originally going to call of uh, what we were going to call it first edition, uh, and it became the Friends of Founders and the Hundred Club and all those sorts of things, and we'd managed to get it to a point where uh, we could start taking deposits for for the machine that people had always wanted to to buy, and at that point, that really then allowed us to pump more and more resources into the, the development and the productionization, the, the, these facilities that you sat in here today. And I'll take you around to see the, mm. the other ones have been brought about by the fact we've managed to bring a body of people that really wanted it together with the people that can deliver it. Uh, and it's that kind of symbiotic relationship that we've generated between the end users and, and ourselves that's really set this thing on fire. So in short, it's been a long, painful <laughs> battle down a very winding road and um, why why do I think that I can succeed um, because I've got the entire body of helicopter pilots uh, that buy these sorts of machines behind me I've designed the machine that they want and they're willing to support us to deliver it. So in terms of the technology, in terms of the technical hurdles, the productionization, the certification, that's just work. That's just work. I've been doing that for the last 20 years. No problem. We will solve and sort out all of that. It's just a question of time and money. And now we've got the whole helicopter industry behind us. <laughs> Not all of them, I would say. There are some people that would really prefer us to fail. Um, but in terms of the... Why do you think some people want you to fail? 
it's it's only those people that have stakes in in other pies, isn't it? Uh, this mm. is so this is so revolutionary. The uh, and there's such a there's such an innovation gap between the products that are on offer today and what we're offering. The they just won't stack up. The moment it's there, there isn't a, a, in my mind anyway, and in the mind of my approaching 600 customers, there isn't a rationale to, to buy anything than, other than our machine for, for private pilots. Mm. So and, and it takes a long time to develop these things. So uh, if you choose to try and talk it down, then you're banking on it failing because by the time it's there, it'll take you too long to respond. So I, I think that's the only reason that people want us. It is a, a big upset to a market that's been very complacent and very stale for a long time. Which is pretty standard, I guess, in disruptions. I guess so. I guess so. That's your field, not yeah, mine. Yeah, yeah. Well, I've interviewed enough people yeah. that have gone through something similar. So, yes. Right. Okay. I've got a few things here. Actually, like something that just jumped out at me, I just took a note was you said about learning how business really works. And you've got all your degrees and you've gone through the traditional education route. But could you just give us a few? tips on your experience of how the real world of business works what you learned from your dad the what, hustle. I, what i learned from a dad i can still hear him moaning about it now which is the banks will never the, the banks will only lend you money when you don't need money right <laughs> and so access to to finance on rational terms when you need it is a nightmare Okay, so you've you've got the basic banks where their their, their code of I don't know, the charter, the code of the, the rules that they have to operate by prohibit them from doing what a bank really needs to do to support business at all levels. So it's a broken system in my mind. I fully understand the rules. I know why it is the way it is. So I don't get so angry about it anymore. I know they're not they're not doing it on purpose. It's the law. <laughs> uh, and then you've got the the sort of uh, venture capital and private equity people that. Um, have such tight timelines where they want to be in and out in a three to five year basis and turn a massive profit. And that's not consistent with the timeline for developing something big and complicated. So all that had happened is what happens to a lot of fledgling innovative companies. They take seed capital too early. They get rolled from one investor group and round to another to another. And then the guys behind it all end up just working for the business and lose control. The vision goes and uh, that itself can often lead to, to failure. Um, and so what what I've really taken from my, my dad is that it's sort of uh, less haste, more speed, you know, do it properly, grow it organically from the ground up. I, I have been determined to make sure that this business can wash its face throughout the whole process. So I paid for it out of my hard-earned, modest income from a little business to start with. And I put everything that I've got in the world into developing those core technologies, that core formula for what the helicopter needed to be, the core formula for how the business and, and everything needed to, to operate to deliver what I want for the, uh, for, for the broader business. And then we built up the credibility to be able to go and get those grants. Uh, and then once we'd got the grants, we were then in a position that we were sufficiently credible to go and relate directly to our customers. Those are the people that will want it. So those are the people that you're going to get the best terms out of to be able to push this through into, uh, uh, into fruition. And then fast forward through that process and you find yourself sat on a quarter of a billion pound order book. 
And what that then means is you're then able to go and get finance if you ever needed it on much more rational terms without having to give equity away. And and so it's just a case of you've you've got to be you've got to be very prepared to work hard for a long time to get this to where it needs to be on the right terms. And I think because this is so disruptive, if you didn't have the, the central guiding vision to stick to the plan, then it would very quickly be diluted. And every single day of my life, I face uh, pressures from my engineering team to, to take easier options that would push the cost up, take the engineering complexity out of it, take the size of the job out of it, but push costs up uh, and remove the control that we have over everything. And that would be catastrophic. It would be like cancer. It'd start with a single cell and before you knew where you are, you'd be riddled with it and you wouldn't be able to control the cost of your product, the cost of your, the operating cost of your products or anything else. So you, you have to be able to, um, play the long game, I'm afraid. So why why will I succeed? Uh, for those reasons, because because I'm going to play the long game and because I've got the people that want this standing right behind me. So in a moment, let's talk about timeframes, when this is going to come mm-hmm. to market, etc. But, you know, as this show used to be called the disruptive entrepreneur, mm-hmm. you know, my business partner and I are fellow passionate entrepreneurs ourselves and we love business. Just to summarise what you said there, so you, you don't have any... Um, you're the sole shareholder, right? I own everything. Me, my, own wife. Everything. Me yeah. my wife. Me and my wife own um, everything. And you used your own money to build the business to a capacity where you could get some grants, get that part. So basically now you're funding growth through deposits from customers. Yeah. Yeah. So again, that strategy would only really work. So it's funding through cash flow, basically. Yeah, it's yeah. pre-selling and yeah. funding growth that way. Absolutely. And so that only works when your, your product is targeting... Uh, a market that can afford that risk, you know, and one of the most interesting things that we've seen throughout this whole uh, process of, of pre-selling the, the helicopters is the whole risk reward spectrum, and we, we've got everything from from people that have, have had to borrow money. That's to my build. business partner's yeah. wedding ring. Just random coaching coming in. So we, we've got everything from people that have had to borrow money to pay the deposit through to people that throwing 100 grand across the table is like buying a bag of chips from McDonald's yeah. you know, and everybody in between. And the the amount, your perception of the risk isn't directly proportional to how big your bank balance is. It, it's a human characteristic. Mm. So some of these, some people are just more tolerant to, to risk than, than others. Mm. And that has been absolutely fascinating. And and I think the, the one of the things that will come out of what we're doing uh, as, as a, a, a useful learning is is that process, how we've connected the end user group with the people that are able to, to do it and funded it directly at minimum cost and maintained the, the vision. And that will also mean that we end up doing it in the shortest possible time as well, mm. without all of the distractions that big finance and being flipped from one round to another to another mm. can, can bring. So what makes someone want to put a deposit down on something that isn't built yet because my business partner and I were talking in the car Mm -hmm. and Mark won't mind me saying but he's the sort of person that would wait watch people fly it for three years see what happens and then buy it later yeah Um, uh, but uh, clearly you've got how many people 600 did you say I think the number today is 500 and 
80. Wow, so you've convinced 580 people to put money down on something that it's, it's not fair to say it's just a concept, it's a lot more than that, but it's not built. Yeah. What, right, pause that part. I'm going to introduce a second question. I'm breaking all rules of interviewing, doing two questions at once, right. but I'm going to do it. Because another thing I wrote down is generally engineers, I'm not labelling you, but mm-hmm. you know, you've got the engineering background. Generally, they're not the best sales and marketers and some learn it. Mm-hmm. So have you had to learn sales and marketing and become a, a, a seller as well as an engineer and then link that to the question of what makes 600 people nearly put money down on something that's not built? <laughs> well, what makes people put money down on something that's not built in this particular case is abject frustration at the complete lack of anything that meets their expectations. So they are, are they almost betting on you to provide yeah. this because they're so pissed off with... I, I could show you <laughs> posts in our, our app where people routine, routinely thank me for, for what we're doing, for what I'm putting, putting myself through, for uh, thanking my wife for the time that she has to put up with <laughs> yeah. me being away from home. Um, people have wanted this aircraft uh, or an aircraft that fills this requirement, let me word it like that, for a long time. People have been vocalising what they want to all the manufacturers for a long time. People, uh, you know, the, the people that buy helicopters are not stupid. You know, they're, they're very savvy, very astute people. Uh, many of them have manufacturing and engineering backgrounds. They know what it costs to manufacture stuff. They can do the maths over the widely published costs of certifying things against the number of aircraft that are sold and know that that's not the reason either. You know, so they, they know that they're over a barrel because of no competition. And once heli- you must know yourself, once helicopters get into your blood, it's, mm. it's in your blood. It's, you become fanatical about it. You just love the the things that you can do with them, you love the lifestyle. And so all of these people, like I, uh, know that the helicopter can be much more than it is today, both as a, as a, as a, a toy for people that want to do it recreationally, but also as, a, as a, a commercial platform as well. Nobody's ever made commercial air transport in helicopters work because they are eye-wateringly expensive. If you sort that out, there's no limit to, to what you can do for a percentage of the, the population. And this urban air mobility stuff that, that's all the, the uh, flavor of the month at the, the moment is showing what the appetite for it is if you can get the price point right. Uh, and so what makes all these people do it is the fact that they really, really, really want it. And then the second side of that is with all of that intellect, if you think of the filter that is the helicopter market as a, as a filter for all the, the people in society, it attracts people that are uh, successful in life because you have to have a certain amount of money to be able to fly, learn to fly helicopters or even more so to own one. Uh, and those people are generally people that have got a pretty healthy risk appetite, not because of the helicopter flying, though there's an element of that, but because of the things they've done in their life to get there in the first place. So the helicopter is an excellent filter for the kind of people that we need anyway. And then once you've got that, then you've got to be credible, haven't you? Then you've got to compete, then you've got to convince these masters of the universe that you're the guy that can do it. You know, and that's where the the years and years of hard-won experience, both in business and technically, mean that you can stand up to guys that are billionaires and and convince them that, no, no, you you just do it like this, or you make one of them like that. Look, I've done one. Mm -hmm. 
and you just have to be the real deal. And it makes me laugh when I when I read uh, sort of comments and articles where people are saying that things like, "Oh, he's he's tricked all these people into paying deposits." Yeah, it's very easy to trick a billionaire, you know, because they're <laughs> stupid. <laughs> You know, the, the, if you're I, listening I can, on the audio, yeah. <laughs> there was some salt and pepper of sarcasm yeah. there. <laughs> so, <laughs> I love if, that. If you, uh, yeah, the people that are in this market are not stupid. Mm. And one of the things that is an absolute uh, bedrock principle of the way I do business, the way I live my life, and uh, the way we run the, the, the business as a whole is. We just tell the truth, mm. yeah. And every every week, I give updates to the the customers through the the Hill app, and we'll show them where we are. They know exactly where we are in development. We share far more than anybody has ever shared in the history of engineering anything, um, and that's because these people have all got skin in the game. They have a right to know exactly where we are. Mm. So we share the things that go well. We share the things that don't go well. You know. And when I started, it's very easy to put your uh, your salesman hat on and. Just just try and distill it down to something that makes it feel like uh, it's all going swimmingly and all the rest of it. And I had a right royal telling off from a, a couple of the, the very, very early adopters. He said, Jason, this can't possibly be going this well. There must be something going wrong. Why don't you tell us uh, what's going wrong? So. When I got that, I'd had a beer. <laughs> and so I said, right, I'll tell you what's gone on this week. <laughs> and I sent this WhatsApp uh, out, click send, and then my wife, Izzy, read it and said, you've said too much. <laughs> but, but they loved it because then you'd got an outpouring of all of these business daddies saying, oh, yeah, that, that happened to me. Standard. And we did it yeah. like standard stuff. So they know. These mm. people know. And, and so I, I think, again, going back to your earlier question of... Um, why will you succeed? One of the things that's really taken my breath away is the fact that you put this pool of people together and you've got somebody in there that knows how to do everything. You know, oh, you want to build a factory? Yeah, I've done a few of them. Do it like this. Or go and talk to him. There's a finance contact you need. Speak to him in the planning. And, and so you have quite a close relationship with your customers. Yeah, then. Yeah. yeah. Very, 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 very close. Yeah. So we, what we've, the, the thing I didn't say, actually, is one of the things, the way we've positioned this when we've talked to, to people is you're not just buying a machine that's not there yet. You're buying the journey to revolutionise in an industry. So what we've sold is this, is is this the, getting you more interested, Mark? <laughs> yeah, he's not leaving till he's bought one. <laughs> I want to buy one. Is it, well, I buy well, this is making me want to redo my test. Yeah. <laughs> Half's in. So, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I've always wanted one of these. I just, well, I want it even more now. Yeah. <laughs> well, the, these ones are a bit cheaper. These ones are about eight hundred. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of those. <laughs> we didn't bring the credit card. I'm yeah. afraid. That's what they all. Yeah. yeah, I interviewed an artist once and I came back with a load of his art. He yeah. was very happy. Yeah. So, so the journey, what we've done is we've, these people feel part and are part of what's been required to revolutionise this industry. We couldn't do it on our own and they can't do it without us. Mm. And that, so sharing and communicating the journey has been the key ingredient to keeping all of this together and, yeah. and, and keeping everybody happy with the way we're, we're progressing. Yeah, that's exciting times. It is, it is. Should we do a bit of a quick fire Q&A? We like doing some quick fires. Mm -hmm. Number one, because it, keeps the, it freshens up the interview, and number two, we often use them for short form like TikTok and stuff like yeah. that. Um, and then you, you let us have a look around. Are we going to be able to have a look around? Yeah, we'll and take can, you here. Can I bring going... the camera? Yeah, 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 of course. Great, all right then. 
So um, Mark and I are good friends with Gerald Ratner, mm -hmm. and he said buying a helicopter was one of the worst financial mistakes I ever made. Is he wrong? Uh, no. Uh, until now, that was absolutely the case because you, if you buy an old turbine machine, your Christmas present when it goes in for its annual will be a massive unexpected turbine bill and then you'll have your machine on the ground for ages while you wait for parts. Uh, if you buy a more modern machine, then you're tied into this depreciation curve mm. that basically dissolves your money. It is fundamentally, today, until we're out, on the, uh, out flying, it is much cheaper to rent for a private pilot than it is to, to buy one. So you have to have extremely deep pockets to, to do it. When HX50 comes along, that changes because we manage the depreciation better. And what do you think it will roughly be? I know there are external forces in depreciation, mm -hmm. but what do you think the, rough, the depreciation will roughly be? Uh, very modest. If anything, I think it would... That's a political no, answer. No, 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 seriously. <laughs> in the, in the, for the X's where you build them and there is no way on planet Earth we're going to be able to make enough of them fast enough, uh, they will appreciate. They, they already are. We're getting people right. being offered over double list price. Uh, for early production slots at the moment. Is that also because of the time in the economy where, I mean, Patex you can't get and they're double and triple over list? Is it part of what's going on of lack of supply in the world or do you think this is the hill factor? Well, there's a massive lack of supply for our product at the moment because we haven't finished building it <laughs> yeah, yet. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, there could be that. There might be that broader behaviour trait going yeah. on at the moment, but I, I just think uh, it, it's, been very, it's been very interesting. At first, you can imagine how difficult it was to get the first pe first people inside this particular empty restaurant. Mm. Uh, and as it's gone gone along, it's got easier. And now you've got friends of friends starting to be uh, referred in, and they're scrambling for a, a position close to their mates now. So I think it's just people are realising it's coming. It's just a question of, of time. Uh, and they also realise that you can't switch on a 500 a year or 1,000 a year factory overnight. It yeah. takes a long time to ramp up to that. So... I, th I think that's the main reason. People are recognising that the sea's already gone out and there's a big wave on the horizon and it's coming this way. You do what you want. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just going to interrupt the old quickfire because I've just thought of something that actually stopped me flying. Okay. The freaking startup procedures. That stopped me flying. Would you like me to train you how to start up a HX50? Yes, please. Yeah, you turn the master on, yeah. you put the avionics on, and you press the start button. Yeah. Slightly different from the 56. Slightly different. <laughs> yeah. 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 That's, that single thing stopped me, lost the passion because of how long, you know, walking around the aircraft, doing all the checks, all the. Because people think. I learned to fly a helicopter. I mean, Mark's passionate about it. He's learning the 66, but kind of, you know, when Mark and I made a bit of money in business, I just said, I've always wanted to fly helicopters. And Mark's more risk averse, so I normally have to nudge him into things. Yeah. And so we, we said, let's do it together. And we did it together and, and we learned together. And I freaking hate all the startup procedures, which literally can take 30 to 45 minutes yeah. and or longer because you've got to fill in the book and all that sort of stuff first. And when you perceive you're going to fly the helicopter, you think you can put it in your back garden, press a button, start, and land it somewhere else. And it's just the most... It's not that at all. Mm -hmm. You're 20 minutes from the nearest airfield. You've got to go and fill in all the books and all of that kind of stuff, and then go and check the thing and all the stuff. It can be an hour. Yeah. It's never going to be as simple as jumping in a car no, because it's course. safety critical. Yeah. The, the walk around is something that you, you, you will always have to do. 
but there are ways of managing that so that it has less impact on you when you actually want to go flying and that all gets much easier when you can keep the thing in your garden at home yeah and then in terms of the books and things like that well there's no excuse for that anymore it should all be digital it should all yeah. be automated and it is with our digi cockpit and our app so all that side of stuff is is taken care of right. for you but literally then you just do those three things to start up the have machine you, have you walk around do your basic inspection jump in power on avionics on go right yeah i might be back in the game <laughs> this interview might have just cost me about a million pounds <laughs> only if you buy two yeah well yeah but this all i've got i've got to take my test again and do all that and oh, yeah. no we'll probably go halves to start with <laughs> um who inspires you the most and why oh who inspires me the most uh, I think the the most influential person in my early life was uh, my dad and watching him go through his, his pulling himself up by his bootstraps. I had an amazing teacher called Jeff Gillen that was the first guy that really alerted me to the fact that I was really good at this stuff. Um, and that, those are the people that have probably been most influential in my early life. I've, I've obviously marvelled over what Frank Robinson's achieved in his life. He's the, the, the nearest... Uh, person to, to what I'm seeking to to achieve uh, and he was kind enough to meet and greet me at his factory when I was 20 so I'm still grateful for that that today but probably those people I think. Mm. What do you think about Elon Musk? Uh, I think what he's achieved is absolutely out of this world quite literally. I, I think uh, he's, a, he's a poster child for, for what you can do if you're bright and you put your mind to it no matter how outrageous it seems if you've got the, the capability, you can do it. Um, so I think he's awe-inspiring. What's the biggest risk you've ever taken? I don't really know. I, I'm an engineer, so I only take calculated risks. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't. I honestly don't know. Pre-selling like 580 well, that helicopters. Wasn't, that wasn't a risk, was it? I don't why know. Was, why was that you. a risk? So no, pre, pre-selling helicopters isn't isn't a risk. So we can make the helicopter. We need some money to scale up to production. So go and get it from the people that want the helicopter. That's just common sense, isn't it? This is you are the guest. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so no, I don't. I don't see that as a. I don't see that as a. Okay, let me reword risk. it. What's the biggest calculated risk you've ever taken? I honestly don't know because I, I don't. I don't see anything that we're we're doing as as terribly risky. You know. It, it, it's just work, you know, it's just dealing with competing factors and solving problems, which is what I've always done. So I, I don't see anything that we're, we're doing at the moment as, as terribly risky. Um, yeah, I honestly don't know. I don't know how to answer that one, I'm afraid. That's all right. That, that's a good answer. Yeah. <laughs> Do you not fear failure? I think being comfortable with failure is a prerequisite for being successful. The only people that don't fail at anything are people that don't do anything. Uh, and so I think you've got to be comfortable with failure and expect to fail lots and lots and lots and lots of times along the way. Don't come into our factory here and think for one minute that everything that we do works. It doesn't. You know, we have literally got a million problems to solve to make this thing work. Um, and what you do is you just line them up on the horizon and pop them off one at a time, you know, and that, that's, that's how it works. So, no, I don't feel failure, uh, fear failure. It's, it's just a question of time as to how long it takes me to knock, knock them all over, you know, but we'll do it. So this show is now called Disruptus and it mm-hmm. used to be Disruptive Entrepreneur. What does that word disruptive mean to you? Uh, 
I don't like the sound of it, to be honest. Right, we'll just edit this bit out. Yeah. <laughs> for, for, for me, uh, I suppose, yeah, it's disrupting the, the norm. But the, the way I see what we're doing, uh, I don't see it as disruptive. I, I see it as just fulfilling a need. You know, there is a, 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 a huge frustrated need in the, in the marketplace for, for what we are offering. And we're just fulfilling that need. It's the essence of good business, isn't it? Mm. So the only reason it becomes disruptive is because the people that were there before me were complacent. And it wouldn't have been disruptive. Uh, we'd have just been another competitor. It's disruptive because they've done nothing for 40 years. Mm. I like that part. Um, right. So can you take us on the timeline from now until um, those 580 odd um, clients get their helicopter and when, when you think the thing's going to be live and and then after that tell us if anyone's interested in registering their interest or where they can follow you because Mark watches your YouTube video updates. Mm-hmm. It was Mark actually that suggested you for the show. Yeah, so uh, as it stands at the moment, we are scheduled to fly uh, early next year. Uh, are you going to fly it? Uh, I'll make the the first flight, but it'll be about <laughs> that far off the ground, and then I'll get a real man in. Right, <laughs> so that might be the biggest risk you yeah. ever take. Yeah. Yeah. Well, not really, not right. really. So, uh, yeah, so we're scheduled to fly next year, 2023. Um, 2020, 2023, uh, yeah, uh, and then we are in planning permission at the moment for the full-scale factory. So during the course of the the first half of 23, we'll complete the build of the the factory and get that operational. We're scheduled, if all goes well, to get the factory up and running uh, by summer 23 and then into into production. At the moment, uh, we're targeting 250 units a year, but if um, sales continue the way they are, we'll probably have to revise that upwards. So I think at the moment we're selling into 2025 for HXs uh, and l- late 2026 for HCs. Um, but then uh, the, the Xs might come forwards a little bit uh, depending on, on sales because the, the building that we're building is big enough to uh, to support more people. It will come down then to how fast we can recruit and train people to, to staff the factory. And where can we follow you and follow the yeah. journey? And so we're we're on all the the socials. So you can follow us. Just search for for Hill Helicopters. Our website is hillhelicopters dot uh, dot com. Uh, and yeah, by all means, sign up on the website. Uh, come and meet the uh, the guys, and we'd be happy to talk to anybody that's interested in uh, in flying helicopters. So when someone puts a deposit down, they can come and. Have a look yeah, around the place so, and all yeah. That. so when someone puts a deposit down, they uh, they can sign up for the tour and come and visit us here at the DC. Every week they'll get uh, an update via the, the Hill app. So we record video updates, we, we live, uh, we, we capture videos and uh, still footage of all the developments as it, as it happens. Mm. Uh, and then we do monthly, uh, what we call Ask Me Anything sessions, where yeah. uh, we, we do an update on where we are over the course of the month. Uh, and then um, uh, people can literally ask me anything they want to over a, over a live session call. So complete transparency on on everything uh, that we're that we're doing. So they can do that. And then about once every six months, excuse me, we do live events here. So we've got cool. a, a big event coming up on the eleventh of August for customers only. So uh, yeah, for customers can come and meet the meet the meet the team. 
meet other owners and the, the community, mm. the people they liaise with on the uh, on the app, uh, and and come and see the latest developments. And you also do YouTube video updates and things. Do you have a social media we can follow with that, or is that just all on Hill Helicopters? Uh, you can get it all from Hill Helicopters, but we have a YouTube channel, we have Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn. Just we, all we, Hill we do, Helicopters. We do, if you just search yeah. uh, Hill Helicopters and all of those. Great. Well, I'm really excited to go and have a look around. And also, I just really wish you all the best. Um, this is going to be exciting to watch and see happen. Um, Mark and I were just talking earlier about there's no point in having much cash at the moment, so might, this trip might have just cost <laughs> yeah. me a lot of money. But I want to say thanks for inviting us in. And, You're very welcome. Um, thanks for coming. Yeah, if we could have a little look around, that'd be great. Yeah, let's go. Great.